it kind of came down to a choice. Like either I'm going to do this business full time or this business is going to stop. And that's like a major mm. leap of faith. And I remember when I decided to leave, I like ran out the door and like called my dad sobbing. And he's like, Lauren, this is just business. Like move forward. That's Lauren Wilson. And this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast, where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. I hope that you'll be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. Lauren Wilson is the founder of Doramar, a luxury fashion e-commerce platform that's taking over the consignment and resale market. Focusing on storytelling, featuring muses and their closets, and giving you the full experience you'd expect from a luxury fashion retailer. Dora Mar is changing how we buy and the stories behind what we wear. In this episode, Lauren discusses how the fashion industry is changing, what it means to be a startup in New York in 2020, and how this year has changed how she views herself, her business, and the impact she can make. All that and so much more coming up, but first... If you're interested in discovering what possibilities and businesses are available for you to create and to live your most fulfilling life, please visit thepowerfulladies.com forward slash coaching and sign up for a free coaching consultation with me. There is no reason to wait another day to not be living your best life when you instead could be running at full speed towards your wildest dreams today. Well, Lauren, welcome to the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am too. It's always fun when people go from coaching client to podcast guest because I know so much more about you and your business than other guests. Yeah. So I get to put myself in the seat of like, okay, pretend I don't know anything so you can tell the audience. (laughs) It's Uh, all a mystery today. It's all a mystery. (laughs) Um, So let's begin. Please share with everyone who you are and about your business. Yes. So my name is Lauren Wilson, as Kara mentioned. I am the CEO and founder of Doramar. So Doramar is a luxury fashion e-commerce platform. So what we're really trying to do is kind of take the whole social media influencer. We love their style. We love them as an inspiration for our lifestyle and basically turning our platform into the one place to buy all of their luxury items. Um, so we're all about that storytelling aspect. We're all about fun clothes and learning about the story behind the clothes. So we're based in New York city. We've been around for a little over a year, um, challenging year to be a small business, but, um, we're trudging through and and we're excited. Yes. And how did you get, come up with the idea of luxury resale or consignment and why is that important to you? Yeah. I had worked in fashion for a long time. I've been in New York for eight years. Even I I came here right after I graduated from USC and always worked in luxury fashion. Um, And I kind of had an aha moment with with Doramar. It wasn't necessarily something I was planning on doing. Um, It was a Sunday evening. I was in an Uber from uh, just like a dinner with friends. And I was going through Instagram as kind of everyone does on a Sunday night. And um, one of your clients, actually, I'll name her by name, Britt Theodora as well. She is... Super stylish, New York based celebrity stylist. And she was selling her mm-hmm. closet on her Instagram, like a lot of stylish women do. But what was so cool about the way she did it 
is that she didn't hang up her clothes against like a ugly backdrop or lay them on her bed. She styled all her looks head to toe. Um, she is a stylist. So that is her, her point of difference is she knows how to put together things that no one else can. And I found myself DMing her being like, I want to buy this from your closet, that from your closet. And I kind of had this like ding ding moment where I was like, how fun to shop from a closet of a, a girl style that I love. I love how she puts put things together. I probably wouldn't have picked that shirt up from the rack had I not seen a way I could wear it um, in my wardrobe now. Mm-hmm. And that kind of spurred the whole idea of kind of shopping from these, what we call muses now, um, these, these women mm-hmm. of, of inspiration. And we kind of took off from there and just having worked in luxury e-commerce at a place called Moda Operandi, I kind of knew what it took to kind of take something from the ground up. And I had a small team of four that's now ebbed and flowed now as any startup does in the first year. But um, yeah, we started from the ground up. And, and when people think about fashion and luxury fashion, there's a lot of stereotypes around it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the stereotypes that you're trying to break with Doramar? Yeah, I think accessibility with uh, with luxury is, I mean, luxury does want to be exclusive. That's the whole point of it, right? Like you buy into the brand because it's cool because not everyone can have it. It's a special, unique item. And I think that you don't want to lose that about luxury, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but someone, you know, someone like myself, I would love to shop Chanel every season new. Uh, but those are exorbitantly high. So I don't think that mm-hmm. you should lose out on experiencing what it means to partake in luxury. And it can still be exclusive and it can still be a special experience. But there's a way to make it a bit a bit more accessible and a bit more um you know, something that everyone can buy into and, and have a base starting point. I think, you know, full price luxury has had a hard time with accepting what resale is, but really I think it's this cool circle where you're kind of targeting these clients right from the beginning and buying them into the brand on the resale market in hopes that, mm-hmm. you know, someday they'll be, you know, on the primary market and struggle their primary stuff into the resale market. So it's yeah. this really cool circle that I think the industry is just starting to kind of accept. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, what I think is so great about your business, and we've talked about it quite a bit, is that not only do you give accessibility to people who would love to have Chanel, and now they can at a, at a resale price, but you also allow people who, who both buy brand new and care about sustainability or minimalism to have an option where they don't need to feel guilty about every purchase because... Mm-hmm. Buying through you, they check so many boxes of this looks great. It's so luxury. It's so a premium experience. And now they're getting to, you know, feel like they're supporting whatever they care about in regards to the environment and sustainability at the same time. And it's a really unique place to come from because it's not about sustainability when the item was necessarily made, but mm-hmm. how do we keep it? How do we keep it going for as long as possible, especially luxury? There's so much hard work that goes into every piece. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you keep the life cycle of that product going for a long time? Yeah, and I think one of the things I remember this was right when I had the idea for the company. Um, we, my team and I, went to a Harvard Business School conference, mm-hmm. um, and they have like a whole luxury goods kind of program as part of their MBA, and so they sponsor a conference. And their keynote speaker um, was the chairman of Caring Americas, the CEO of Caring America, excuse me. And someone asked, and Caring is, you know, they own Gucci, they own Alexander McQueen, um, Mm -hmm. McCartney, they've got a great portfolio of luxury brands. And they do a pretty good job as conglomerate of putting sustainability both in like environmentally, but also their business practices um, for their employees and their supply chain. Mm -hmm. Someone asked how important is sustainability to your customer? And I loved his answer because he basically said, it's not why people buy. It's a great, it's a nice thing, but it's not why people buy luxury. And I don't disagree with him, but obviously that has to change. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, fashion is one of the biggest pollutants 
as an industry in the world, so it has to change. But how do you make it something natural for people instead mm-hmm. of forcing it down their throats of be environmental, be environmental? To me, that's not a sustainable consumer practice. Right. I'm going to get sick of it if you keep telling, if you keep pushing that buzzword as a marketing tool. Mm-hmm. So I think with Doramar, we really want to create a platform where shopping secondhand and thus shopping sustainably is like a second nature thought. It's like, oh, yeah. well, they have like amazing things. It's such a fun platform. I have that luxury experience. I'm buying from like the coolest people ever. Like this isn't even like, this is a no brainer and like it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. So that's great. So I want to make it something natural and not this kind of marketing buzzword because it, I mean, fashion is fickle. The buzzwords are going to, are going to fade. Um, so I want to make it a part of the business mm-hmm. and a part of a consumer experience that just becomes a part of how we shop. Yeah, it's the same as getting an amazing unboxing experience. It's exactly. just part of what you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be, it, it should be a natural part of fashion. Um, that's the direction I want to move in with Dormar and hopefully the industry moves in where it's not like, is this sustainable or not? It's kind of like, yes, obviously this is, this mm-hmm. is, you know, we're all trying to build good business practices here for the industry as we go forward. Yeah. Um, what did you go to school for? So at USC, I was a communication major, um, business minor. I did not want to be a business mm-hmm. minor. My dad forced me to. Um, and at the time, <laughs> I think I was kind of like, oh, this is like, these classes are not my thing. Accounting, finance, like not, not where I, my, how my brain works. Now, eight years later, eight and a half years later, I wish I would have listened to him more and probably been a business major um, if I really mm-hmm. had to do it again, just because now I own my own business. And I'm, I feel like I'm playing catch up a little bit on those uh, classes that I really probably should have paid more attention to. But um, I mean, I think communication at USC is is great. You know, you learn, it's a very broad major. Um, but the biggest thing is, is you learn how to kind of message a brand, if you will. You learn to take all these pieces of information mm-hmm. and basically critically think about it and then communicate it to someone who knows nothing about that subject. Um, and so while it's broad, mm-hmm. I think it's helped me to form the thesis of my career and now the thesis of Dormar. So I'm thankful for that. Um, I lived in New York after USC and then got a master's in costume studies from NYU. Um, and costume studies was a program of 24 people. It's a two-year program. Mm-hmm. And it's really looking at fashion through the lens of academia. So you're taking, you know, starting from literally cavemen all the way to where we are now. And mm-hmm. um, 2016 is when I graduated. So studying fashion from how it, how it kind of seeps into every aspect of, of the world, basically the economy, um, you know, the government, just it, everything that we know about fashion, it plays out in all of our mm-hmm. lives every single day. So it's looking at how that plays out. Um, and just kind of the technicalities of fashion too. Like if the lace is from the 1940s or the 1930s. And so that lends itself to museum work, which is, I thought I wanted to be Andrew Bolton at the Costume Institute. Mm-hmm. Turns out I wasn't, I wasn't built out for that. So, um, I went back into the fashion industry itself, but I really think, you know, being able to study my passion so, thoroughly is something that was a, a massive privilege and um, especially at, at NYU and, and being in New York, the center of, of fashion itself. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think a degree like that adds, it really blends well with your communications degree in the depth of storytelling that you can actually provide. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Um, history of fashion is one of my favorite topics as well, because I love history and I love fashion. So getting com- to combine them and the fact that you had that extra layer of almost, um, anthropological uh, layer exactly and what it does you know people having worked in the fashion world for 20 years before being a full-time entrepreneur um 
people think it's so different than what it actually is. And it really depends on what element you're in. If you're in luxury or or couture, or if you're in, I was in the sport fashion space. Mm -hmm. And I still think that movies like The Devil Wears Prada are some of the most accurate. Like take away all the meanness. Yeah. That's not everywhere. But literally arguing for hours about a belt or a color or the the level of influence that these brands have and how it trickles down through all of society, even to people who don't care about fashion at all. Yeah. Um, Because even camo is inspired by fashion. Right. I mean, we live our lives in, in fashion, even if we're fashionable or not. You're, 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 whatever you're wearing does say something about you, whether you want it to or not. And I think there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. intersections in that. And um, I've always just been personally passionate about it. And I think right now where I'm at with Dora Mar, it's never been more evident how important that costume studies degree has been, not even just from, mm-hmm. you know, using a lot of my network um, from that time, but also understanding that storytelling aspect, understanding the psychological drive um, of fashion and of clothing and what people want to know. And, you know, I think I was talking to someone about provenance and fine art. And that's like such, when you, when you buy a piece of art, provenance is like the biggest thing to think about, right? You're like, where did it come from? What hands did it exchange? And that adds up to its value and its story. And I Mm -hmm. think that's something in fashion that we've sort of missed a little bit once it it walks the runway and is in the store. And so um, when I really like boil Dormar down to what it is, it's like really telling that provenance of, of these pieces and, Mm -hmm. and, having that be a part of its value. It feels, especially when with the, the muses that you work with, mm-hmm. you know, these, these women have their own businesses, their own brands, and they have their own identity and storytelling. So to be able to layer that on, um, it's, it's, um, it's like the fashion example of like baseball cards almost like, yeah. Whose yeah, piece do you want? Whose yeah. card do you want? Yeah. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a great comparison actually. Yeah. I think, like these, these women, our muses have amazing, awesome, fun stories already that people love to listen to. So to be able to buy right into their wardrobe is, is something really fun. And, and it gets, it, you're able to continue on the story and then mm-hmm. who knows what it'll continue on to next, but hopefully to go through Dormar. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Um, when you look back at eight-year-old self, did you imagine that you would be one working in fashion and two to be an entrepreneur? That's a great question. Um, I've, I've always like tried to sort of pinpoint where I started loving luxury because I think when I was probably 14 ish, I discovered style.com, which Vogue bought, but style.com was basically like database of like all the newest fashion shows. And I watched that, like I consumed mm-hmm. that like nobody's business. I like went through like 50 shows a day, like a crazy person. I just loved the dream of it. I loved the production. I loved like mm-hmm. how it transported you. And I can't really pinpoint where I started that obsession in a way. Um, so I think probably around that age is when I kind of was like, I think I want to go into fashion. And I think even before that, like mm-hmm. every eight-year-old girl, I like loved limited to and all and all that sort of thing. But I always think fashion was what I wanted to do. I'm not sure I realized the entrepreneurship part um, for a really mm-hmm. long time. I mean, I think this sounds silly, but like in group projects, I always liked to be like the lead and the delegator. Like, okay, I'll take on this. Why don't you do that? I kind of found myself naturally doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as I like got into college and did internships, a fashion internship is, I mean, you're told stand in a corner, be quiet, like do what we tell you to do. And so 
I think then I kind of took a step back from that entrepreneurial spirit because I was like, all right, to get ahead, this industry is super hierarchical. I've got to just do what they tell me and mm-hmm. not use my voice. And that's been, I think, a career challenge for me since I graduated college is like transitioning from that like quiet intern that like just does tasks to being someone that's using their voice and creating something. And it's taken a long time to kind of work to that. I think it's been always there, but I've kind of mm-hmm. been, um, you know, afraid to use it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you had some internships at amazing places. Do you want to share some of those? Yeah. Yeah. So I, my freshman year at USC, I was kind of opened up. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to go to USC is being that it was in the middle of LA. It's so like a big city, but also had a great, you know, campus experience. I wanted both, but mm-hmm. being that I was in LA, you had this like great career development center and you had all these opportunities like in your backyard. And so I remember like the first time that I went onto like the USC career site with all the internships and I was like, blown away by the names I could work at. It was like Armani, Jimmy Choo. And I was like, are these for real? And, you know, most, a lot of college students wait till their junior or senior year to really take those internships on. But I kind of was like, I can't sit here and see Jimmy Choo and Armani listed as a possible internship (laughs) and not give it a try. Um, So spring semester freshman year, I applied for a PR internship at Jimmy Choo. Um, Went in for the interview. I was like blown away. I remember like sitting in my boss's office, who was, I got the internship but at the interview. Um, my boss's assistant came into her office in the middle and was like, should we pull these shoes for Rihanna or these? And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this world? Like, this is everything I've wanted and more. Um, I got the internship and I was so green. Like, I think uh, I, you know, you go into these internships and you're all dreamy eyed, but like it is a business and it is an industry. And there mm-hmm. is kind of like no training program for fashion internships. You kind of just have to like get in there and like, be a sponge and listen. But I remember, you know, my boss being like, can you messenger these shoes to Charlize Theron? And I was like, yeah, sure. And like two days would pass. She'd be like, did you messenger them? I was like, oh, sorry. Did you want that now? I didn't realize. (laughs) I mean, I made so many mistakes, so many mistakes, but I learned so much. I'm really thankful I started so early um, because I learned how it works and how to get ahead and what's expected of you. It's a fast moving industry. Um, Like I said, there's no playbook. Mm -hmm. There's no rules. You just have to kind of think on your toes. Um, so after that, I went to Armani, their celebrity PR office in LA. Um, and then I was at Elle Magazine in New York City. And that's when I fell in love with New York. And I was like, I have to come back here after graduation. Um, and so I did. Like June, a month after graduation, I was like, mom, dad, I'm moving. They're like, what are you going to do? I'm like, just give me three months to figure it out. And um, I did. So <laughs> it's um, it's so like to me, the... Working in fashion, there's so many job opportunities, right? It's not just be a designer or be in PR or be an editor. Like there's mm-hmm. so many things you can do and work in that space. Um, yeah. How did you find your niche along the way? Yeah, I think it's really funny. Like people that, you know, don't work in fashion or don't know fashion, when you say you work in fashion, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, what do you design? Like that obviously is the most mm-hmm. like asked question. I'm like, oh my God, I would, I, I'm not honestly... I'm creative, but I'm not creative. Like I'm so not artistic in that way. I could never be a designer. What they do is incredible. Um, I think USC really opened me up to, and even my major being a communication major, kind of the more business side of fashion that you can do. So mm-hmm. I've always worked in PR, marketing, business development. That's always been the departments that I've worked in. I've never worked mm-hmm. in the more creative feels. And I think when I interned at Elle Magazine, I loved it because editors are so cool. But I didn't necessarily see myself taking on being an editor. I think I I graduated college in 2012. And so being like that print digital divide was just starting to really form. And I think, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a part of that 
you know, head on. I liked working for mm-hmm. the brands themselves and developing that identity um, and you use magazines for that, but there's also, you know, a lot of other elements that you use. And I think, yeah, I just kind of naturally fell into the, the business side of things. I like mm-hmm. things moving fast. I like creating things, um, not in an artistic sense, but in, in a business yeah. sense. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how I fell into that. When you think of the words powerful and ladies, what do they mean to you as individual words? And what do they mean when they're combined? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I think powerful to me, it doesn't mean, uh, it means obviously like a go-getter and getting out there and, 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 and doing what you want to do. But I don't think it means in the absence or fear or anxiety or hesitation. I think it's, um, it's with all of those things and going full force still. And I think that's something when I think of powerful and, and kind of even creating my business and what I've, you know, had to, you do have to be powerful as a, as a CEO, right? You have to mm-hmm. lead a company, build something and be fearless about it, I think. And there's a, a real power, a real power in that. Um, and when I think of ladies on its own, um, see, ladies is such a delicate term, I think, for women. When you really think about it, I think when I worked at Moda Operandi, my job was mm-hmm. to kind of cultivate our VIP clients. And so we would do all these beautiful private events and we would call it like, you know, the, the attendees were the ladies. It wasn't, you know, the women attending or the clients attending. It was like, what ladies is this host going to bring? And that always had like a kind of um, delicate term to it. So it's almost like powerful and ladies together, are almost like this contradictory term, but they're not mm-hmm. because women are powerful. Ladies are powerful. Just changing that word doesn't mean that they aren't powerful anymore. So um, that's, it's funny to put those two together. I actually never thought about that, about putting those two kind of contradictory <laughs> words together. I love it though. Mm-hmm. I love it though. I don't think that there should be one definition of what a lady is. Um, we should mm-hmm. use our, our ladiness to be powerful. Yep. Um, speaking of being powerful, how have you had to be more powerful than you ever have before going through this crazy year that is 2020? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of layers to that, at least for me personally, being a small business, mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to be powerful to still be standing right now. I think, you know, it's very, very difficult to be a small business and any small business, whether you're doing great or not so great, wherever you are, like you have to be powerful right now, um, just to keep your own morale up, let alone your team or the business's morale. And I think off of that, um, I am biracial. My dad's black and my mom's white. And obviously everything going on with the social justice movements has really, um, you know, allowed me to step into the full power of my voice and by proxy mm-hmm. Dora Mars voice. And so I think powerful is probably like maybe my number one adjective right now as a person and as a business, um, really finding mm-hmm. power in that voice and, and not being scared of it. How, how has your approach changed, you know, especially with what's happening from Black Lives Matter and giving everyone more of a voice than they've ever had before? um, in the black community? Yeah, I think for when I started Dormar for a long time, I, I think I was trying to create it in the image of businesses that already existed. Like I was trying, you know, I'm very, and Kara, we talk about this all the time, how I'm like scared to do like certain aspects, like a certain mm-hmm. email or a certain social media posts. I don't think it's going to be quote unquote luxury enough. That's like a big hiccup of mine. So I'm trying so hard to like emulate things that have been, have been done. And I kind of realized you know, this past summer, 
I think COVID obviously laid the groundwork and then BLM kind of like pushed me over the edge to understand that I'm in this really unique position um, as a small business, as a resale business, Mm -hmm. as a black founder to use my platform and my voice in a way that no other business has uh, the power to do so. And Mm -hmm. so I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's doing things. It's just a gut feeling, to be honest. At this point, I think mm-hmm. this. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that is really important for me, and I've kind of noticed with businesses now, is like we're leaning into just who we are as people instead mm-hmm. of this facade of of you know a fashion house or fashion retailer. It's who are the people behind that? We're all like starving for like human connection here, and I think mm-hmm. you see fashion brands like having these zooms, having like Zoom photo shoots, and they're not perfect anymore. It's like just peeling back that layer of phoniness almost of like marketing mm-hmm. garbage <laughs> and just showing the just showing the people behind the brand and the voice behind the brand. And um, you know, for for Dora Marn, for me, it's been really about talking about what it means to be a woman of color in this industry and how we can change that and like having the kind of ugly conversations. Um, I don't, it's not something I want to shy away from with the brand, even though we are a very pretty brand. When you look on the side, it's beautifully executed. It's very stylized. It's very, very editorialized. And that's very much part of who we are. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, another part. Resale is already a disruptor and there's many other ways to be a disruptor in the fashion industry. And I think we're, you know, that's something important to me. So we're, we're going for it. And you don't need to be a disruptor in the sense of <clears throat> like disruptor often sounds like it's an aggressive word, mm-hmm. but there's a very elegant way to disrupt things at the same time. And I think you really hit on some of those key words of how do you like being authentic and revealing what's behind the scenes and telling authentic stories, like just telling the truth alone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can subtly disrupt entire industries and cities and anything else that you want to. Um, it's interesting, right, to think about how how to be a disruptive lady. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, disruptive is kind of like a hard turn when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it can it can be you know very elegant as well. So um, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be an either or here. Yeah how how has your business changed since you've leaned into telling more of your story and and being disruptive in in the ways that you've implemented so far? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, without sort of leaning into who I was and injecting that more into the business, I'm, I'm in full transparency, not sure this would be around anymore. I think, um, that, and Kara, you were so instrumental in helping me in this is like really finding that voice and harnessing it. Um, it's been like absolutely key through, Mm -hmm. through COVID. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really important to us is getting those muses and telling those stories. And, um, I'm going to do a plug here on a really exciting thing that's that happened this summer. Um, but we got this amazing feature in Vogue about the business and about the muses and about our story. And that's really created, you know, more buzz for the brand. We're getting like amazing new muses on board. Um, we have a male muse coming up shortly, actually in a few weeks. So there's like a lot of like really exciting turns that I don't even think I would have envisioned for the brand that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people that I've worked with in the past jumping on board to help on Dora Mar, um, in a way that I kind of never envisioned. So, um, I think through really tough times, being honest is, is the best way to go forward. And, Mm -hmm. um, nine times out of 10, you know, people react to that. Yeah. No. And especially when you've done such a great job of having the fundamental pieces in place, 
right? Like you're clear on what Dora Mars stands for. You're clear on the level of elegance and, and that you want to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that you've created a business where even the, like it's, yes, it's secondhand. Yes, it's reselling, but the luxury doesn't have to go anywhere. And right. it shouldn't go anywhere in the product, in the experience, in the storytelling. And I, I'm just really excited how you've carved out this space that allows so many people on different levels to participate in. Yeah. From from the muses, from the 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 um, people who are consigning with you, from the buyers, from people who are following you. Um, I sent you a note earlier today because I was reviewing my emails and I got one of the Doramar weekly updates. And it was about the Chanel um, buttons. Yeah. And that email was so great. Like it, it was such a clear storytelling process. And um, just to like really get, like I kept scrolling down. I want like, I want more, I want more. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, someone who gets so many emails so, like, yeah. to, to suck me in, be like, and then what? Yeah. I had to send you a note because fashion for me in particular, like there's there's been a black hole of I used to love it like you were talking about um style.com but even I think out of Canada they had fashion tv yeah and I used to watch that all the time like just runway after runway and like that would just be on the background all the time yeah and I there was a moment when it was so great and and creative and like you really saw how different people had different houses they could follow or brands they could get into and then I don't know what happened if it was me getting distracted launching businesses or the the shift but like suddenly fashion just became boring to me and i love how what's happened especially this year there's that shake-up happening of creativity and having to really make sure the storytelling is there totally and i'm getting excited again like i you know came home to from my trip with all this mail and there was a catalog and i was like so I, I went to bed last night and like looked at it. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, I like would never do as like my bedtime reading, but I'm like, this looks great. Yeah, it got overwhelming. Fashion got really overwhelming to consume because there was so much of it, and mm-hmm. some of that I chalk up to fast fashion in a way. I think that mm-hmm. luxury, you know, you had your Zara's and your H and M, you know, pumping out new collections or product lines in a matter of like three weeks. And luxury tried to keep up with that. And with that, you just had like this mass production and overconsumption and people got like tired of it. You know, people, I mean, we Mm overconsumed, which is why you you have this boom in resale, I think. And we overconsumed in product. We overconsumed in content too. And then you kind of just started not participating, to be honest. You were like a, a passive participant. And, and that's how I got too. And I don't, sometimes I chalk it up just working in the industry, but Part of me is like, you know what, even as a consumer, because we're still consumers, even if you work in the industry, um, it became like you took everything for granted. It was like another show, another like cool video. I mean, it became like not so novel mm-hmm. and cool. It just became really commodified. Yeah. So, and, uh, and so much of it became the same. Yeah. There was yeah. a moment when like everything kind of collapsed into a similar look. And I'm like, this is the opposite of what we need. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think now you're seeing like, even with fashion weeks right now, there's, uh, you know, a lot of designers are pulling out of like the main fashion weeks. They're mm-hmm. going to like launch their collections, whether it be like virtually or like just to a small grouping of, of buyers. And, you know, you had designers producing like 10 collections a year. And some, I think Gucci pulled back to like 
two shows a year. Like it's men and women combined and like it's very streamlined and very conscious. So I think you're going to see like a lot of that. And I think that's another reason why resale is so important. It's very conscious. It's very mm-hmm. uh, pointed. Yeah. I recently watched the Slim Aaron um, documentary on <gasps> Amazon must... Prime. Yeah. The photographer from yeah. the 19- yeah. 1950s. Yeah. And I don't know what's happening in, in my wherever space I'm in, whatever season I'm in personally, but I'm currently obsessed with going back to like my New England, Northeast, like preppy heritage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I need polos again. Like does the cost <laughs> still exist? <laughs> like I'm like, I'm like everything in Ralph Lauren. I think I need that now. Yeah. Um, which they actually have some beautiful ads right now in the most recent Vogue. Um, both of like diversity and different generations. They've always been really good at a lot of really that. good. Yeah. Um, but the new ads look incredible. Um, I don't mind. There's a magazine full of ads. If all the ads look awesome. Yeah, totally. I think I, the, there's a Ralph Lauren documentary on Netflix. And I'm pretty sure I watched it like a few months ago mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I cried. Ralph Lauren was what, my first fashion job in New York. So it always like holds a special place for me that that brand in general. And I like, rode the elevator with Ralph himself when I was like a few weeks into the job. And I was like, so I, I stepped in there for like an afternoon coffee. I stepped out for an afternoon coffee, was like 3 p.m., like looked awful, like gross, 22 years old, not looking fancy. Step into this elevator. It's like this tall, what was his security detail? And then it was Ralph and it was me. And I was like, he was like, good morning. And I was like, or good afternoon. I was like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be in here. Like, am I allowed to ride the elevator? <laughs> I felt like I was, I told that story to everyone. They're like, you're Rachel Green from Friends because she worked there and had like that, you know, run in with him or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's just so inspirational because he, I mean, his name is Ralph Lipschitz. If you look up his actual name, he was born Ralph Lipschitz. He's not this like waspy um, American, you know, New Englander guy that he portrays, but he's built this entire world. I mean, truly there's not many designers besides maybe like Chanel that have truly built worlds. Um, and mm-hmm. what he's done is like just so incredible. And I think that's what fashion represents is like building a world, building a lifestyle that, that you buy into. You can buy a polo anywhere, but Ralph yep. Lauren, you're buying into Ralph Lauren. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just like such an exemplary example of, of that. And so I cried at the end of the documentary. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I'm, and I love what he's done about just Americana, right? Like yeah. he leans into the Southwest and loves using turquoise and like just anything that represents the idealism of of what Americana is. Yeah. How he's how he's taken it and leveled it up and kind of built out that culture. I think the US has lately in particular does such a bad job of creating cultural unity. Like this mm-hmm. is what America means, this is what America represents. And I feel like there's some like there's like one place of hope where it's like being captured. Yeah. And it might be um, it like within the Ralph Lauren universe, like he's reminding us like, no, look, we can all hang out and we can all look awesome and we can all do these things together and kind of preserving some of that, the good parts of the identity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think like, even mm-hmm. like you said, a diversity standpoint, like I think for Ralph Lauren, it's always been naturally a part of his ads, naturally a part of his runways. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, wow, Ralph used a black model for the first time. I mean, it's always been like you no. said, like, he's created like this Americana that's inclusive of everyone and everyone can yeah. be a part of this, you know, American dream, what, what have you, that he's sort of created in his own, uh, through his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's such a, that's something so unique to Ralph as an American brand. Yeah. 
Who are some of the the powerful women in in fashion and in your personal journey that you've really admired and looked up to? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, one of them would be my former boss at Gucci. Her name is, uh, well, two people at Gucci. So one, one, her name is Lila Staub. She is the VP of celebrity there. She's like absolutely has just like an incredible career. And she also is just such a, uh, she's, she's not hard on you, obviously. Like, I mean, she's tough. She was very, you know, direct and, and knew what she Mm -hmm. wanted, but she also was incredibly caring for her employees. Um, and realize, you know, when you're a fashion assistant, you're kind of making nothing. Um, you're doing like super grunt work. You're like packing boxes, running samples. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not glamorous, but I remember after this one big event, she came into me and my colleague's office. We like kind of shared a little office and she was like, you guys, that was out of control. Amazing. Like go pick out something from the store. We'll put it on our budget. Like little things like that. Or like when mm-hmm. I was on vacation with my family, I was on the same island at the same time as she was with her husband. And ran into her multiple times and she ended up sending me this like beautiful towel at my hotel room. Like she arranged it like I was one of the celebrities at the hotel. And she's just, she really goes above and beyond. And I think she cares about the people that work for her. And I think I want to be that sort of um, mentor to, you know, as I grow my team mm-hmm. that really deeply cares for her employees. And we're still, I, I left Gucci in 2014 and we're still in contact today. Um, so she's a really big driving force for me. And, um, I think my first internship boss at Armani, who also was my colleague at Gucci, she believed in me when I was 19 years old and yeah. kept hiring me for different internships, brought me onto Gucci full time. And so I think it's those people in your network that like are with you from the start that are, you know, inspirational for me and I see them grow and I want to emulate what they're doing. And, um, that's, you know, probably the people I look up to the most. Mm-hmm. How do you think that New York is evolving and changing with everything, you know, again, all the 2020 factors um, and particularly in fashion? Um, So like in the core of where you are, how do you see it evolving and and moving forward? Yeah, it's so funny. I feel like my girlfriends and I, not even fashion related, get so upset when people are like, New York's dead, New York's dead. Um, Obviously, there's so many people, you know, moving around and such. And I think for the New Yorkers that are in it for the long haul, you're kind of like, New York doesn't die. Like, this is what New York does. It yeah. gets hit the hardest by anything. It's just a massive city with a massive population. Um, but it always mm-hmm. rises from the ashes in a way that no one could imagine. I don't know what that looks like yet. We're still, like, very much in the thick of this. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of what it looks like for fashion, I think you're going to see an amazing wave of creativity. You're going to see right now, there's, like, tons of closures. Brands are going out of business retailers are either going out of business or bankrupt or whatever, it's going to be like really bad for a while and a little bit confusing. But I think out of that is where you see the greatest opportunity and massive kind of renaissance of Mm -hmm. new creatives, um, new amazing designers and partnerships and collaborations. And I think the people that are here for that renaissance are going to find it very enriching and fulfilling. And the ones that left, well, they just missed out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you look back at the business that you built and the journey you've been on, what are moments when you can say like, I am really proud of making it through that, or I'm really proud of achieving that? Um, I think, uh, so I took a leap of faith about a year ago and left my full-time job to pursue Dorimar. And that was a giant, giant leap. I mean, in full transparency, I wasn't ready to do Dorimar full-time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. I was like, 
you know, you're supposed to take baby steps. You're not supposed to hit this milestone. And then you hit this milestone and then you can leave. And it kind of came down to a choice. Like either I'm going to do this business full time or this business is going to stop. And that is like a major Mm -hmm. leap of faith. And I remember when I decided to leave, I like ran out the door and like called my dad sobbing. And he's like, Lauren, this is just business. Like move forward. But like that blind trust is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think as this year has unfolded and little things from like signing on a new muse or receiving kind of like emails that someone passed along to someone, my Vogue article who passed along to someone else, like those little moments, you're kind of like, this is Mm -hmm. all worth it. Or one of our muses got to speak on our platform and she's launching her own business. And so so, so she got to like launch her own business on Dormar. And like, that's what it's all about. It's like Mm -hmm. connecting people, giving people a platform to speak about who they are. And our vehicle right now is clothing, but I, it's still much bigger than that, hopefully in the future. Um, Yes. That's just what I love. So I started there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just, it's, I think as an entrepreneur, taking every little thing as a massive win is really important for me because the, the hard times and the hits are really hard and you feel those like they're the biggest loss. Mm-hmm. So every little thing that's good, I take as the biggest yeah. win um, to, to keep morality high. And I think it's, you know, running a business is hard. It's really hard. So you've got to mm-hmm. be celebratory for everything, even a, a positive email that says, I'll have a phone call with you. Yeah. How long was the idea of Dora Mar poking at you before you took the leap? After I saw Brit's Instagram, mm-hmm. I was like, mom, dad, I'm starting this business. And they're like, <laughs> what? Like <laughs> I had done a little thing with friends on the side a few years earlier. We were in Thailand and we saw this woman kind of make these like wonderful hand woven totes and sandals. Mm-hmm. And so we started like kind of like selling them to friends a little bit. And it's called Palm and Circumstance because it had pom-poms all over them. So we thought it was like That's a funny play cute. off of the <laughs> word pomp and circumstance. And they were super cute. But again, I will never start a business with four like best friends. Just like we all were like, you know what? We don't want to ruin friendships here. So it never got massively far. And so I think when I told my parents I have this new business idea, they're like, all right, Lauren, like, let's see if, <laughs> let's see what, what happens here. Um, but I remember like making decks from, for, for my dad in particular, who's, who's in finance about like the, uh, market size of resale and what the trends are and how big it can be. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to, um, two colleagues of mine at Moda about the idea. And I think I just kind of started right off the bat. I didn't really actually marinate on it. I, right off the bat, I was like, I know this is something that the industry's missing. And mm-hmm. I know that if I don't jump on this now, someone else will. And so I don't think there was a pause. I can be a little bit impulsive too. So like when I want to do something, it's kind of like, we're doing it now. But like, yeah. what's the point of waiting? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's many good arguments for waiting, but it's just not something, it's just not how I work. Yeah. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think it's good. I mean, there's, when you, as an entrepreneur, if you see something and you know it's a possibility, you're like, we're already behind. Like, let's go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think finally, after presenting a lot of things to my dad, he was like, if you don't launch this now, this is going to be over. Like, you got to go, you got to go. And I was like, all right, he sees it now too. So like, we're going to go, we're going to go. Do I wish things had been done differently? hundred percent. But that's all part of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you have put in place to help you keep succeeding? Podcasts or do you do a schedule a certain way? Like what are some of your pro tips for, you know, making it as an entrepreneur? Ooh, well, hire Kara. That is number, that is number one. Um, 
Number two, I, for me, I, um, I get my energy from other people. And so mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I think when I started this business six months ago, now I'm like constantly reaching out to people and like just asking for conversations mm-hmm. about how they've done it, whether it's like friends that have started businesses, friends of friends, um, even, mm-hmm. you know, people in way different industries, there's always something to learn on how they work. And so I kind of go straight for this to the source, I guess, if you will. Um, I do listen to podcasts. I can't point, I should be better about it, to be honest. Um, I think when I'm like walking around New York or like commuting, I'm always like listening to music. It's like my time to kind of like tune out of like business person, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say my biggest thing is, is leaning on other people who have succeeded and just going straight to them and, and, and mm-hmm. speaking. And I think, um, another thing that's important and especially during COVID when we can kind of all like work 24 hours a day, basically, mm-hmm. because you're just at home and all that sort of thing. I'm very, very, um, particular about like Friday night through to Sunday morning. I actually don't think about this company. Like mm-hmm. it is my time to like, I like don't even try to, I didn't really check the sales to be honest. Like I'm like, oh, hopefully there's an order. I'll check it Sunday morning. Um, because I think it's, and I learned this from, um, I, I read somewhere, Natalie Massonette, the founder of Net-A-Porte, who is like revolutionized mm-hmm. fashion e-commerce for like literally everyone. Like no one is e-commerce fashion without her. And she said mm-hmm. that even from the beginning, she never worked on the weekends. And I can never say never. I'm currently in my studio right now doing some work. So, but I think there's something to be said about taking that time off. I don't like, you're not a martyr for working straight through because mm-hmm. then you're not working efficiently. So taking that time off, to, like cool off is super important. And then you come fresh with new ideas that you probably wouldn't have even thought of if you were, you know, sitting, grinding it out. So, um, just mm-hmm. taking a day of self-care hundred percent, something I do. Yeah. Um, when you look at what's next and where you're going, what are you most excited about? Ooh, I think uh, what I'm most excited about is, you know, with Dora Mars, it, so it's for the business, but for myself as well, is mm-hmm. bringing on these like amazing muses, whether male, female, what have you. They have such cool stories and I'm creating this like fantastic network that of incredible people to share with not only my platform, but for me to learn from. Um, so I think like in a big city like New York or, you know, uh, cities all over the country, it's, it makes that community feel smaller and more accessible and Mm -hmm. less scary to kind of build that network and that community. So I'm excited to sort of build on that and share it with Dormar, but also, like I said, learn, learn myself as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the the Renaissance people here staying in New York, yeah, because <laughs> you guys well, are the tough guys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I also you've been doing a lot of like customer deep diving, and the whole month of September um, in the community, we're focusing on dream customers. Mm-hmm. How has like aligning with your customer helped you to see your business in a different way? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're like running a business, you're so in your own head, like you barely, like you kind of take time to think about what the customer would want to see, but like, not really, you know, like you're trying to just like get things going, like trudge through things and you don't think about like their actual experience. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Kara, we had this discussion of like just picking up the phone and calling your customers. Um, a, it's great to, to talk to them just as people and as, um, you know, just getting to know them as people. I think that's something mm-hmm. that I forgot that at Moda that we did. I was on the business development client experience 
team. So our whole job was getting to know our customers and understanding those needs. And I think when I launched my own business, mm-hmm. I forgot about that part of it. Um, and, you know, it, for them, it's a chance to like connect with an actual person from the business. Like, yes, we show these great muses and all that sort of thing, but like, it really means something else. And, you know, you're just having a one-on-one personal conversation with them mm-hmm. and things you miss. Like I was almost going to buy that, but I didn't know if it was going to fit. And like the return window was like too short or whatever. Um, or, you know, in talking to these customers, they're like, wait, actually I have all this stuff to consign with you. Like, would you want this? Would you want that? Like I was actually going to talk to my daughter or I wish I would have known you earlier. I just moved outside of New York city. It's just, you're creating these kind of like personal connections with these people. And, um, now they feel kind of like friends in a way, friends up virtual friends right now. Um, yeah. but I think, yeah. you know, we're creating this community of muses, but we're also creating this community of people that of clients and customers that, um, engage with the brand as well. Mm-hmm. How important for you um, has it been to have a group of women or girlfriends that um, have been on your career and now your entrepreneurial journey, whether they were with you in the, in business or if they've just been friends um, yeah. along the way? Like my everything, by absolutely everything. I went to an all girls school. So that community of like girls and now women has been sort of the stronghold of, of my life, I guess. Um, they, you know, they're doing amazing things with their career and their life. Um, and without them, I, I, I think I don't have the words that really describe the, the impact that they've had for me. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I tell a lot of my friends, like you guys are my soulmates, like you, like my, mm-hmm. my group of girlfriends, I have an amazing group of high school girlfriends and I have an amazing group of college girlfriends and they all actually kind of interconnect as well. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they are like soulmates for life. life partners, all like 20 of them or whatever it is. Um, but very important, very important. I think, um, like we lean on each other in the worst of times and the best of times. I think that's, that's what they're there for. So I feel really, really lucky. Mm -hmm. What do you put in place as you're building your business and you've got everything going on? How do you maintain those relationships as well? So my past roommate, I, I've lived alone now for a year. My past roommate, that was one of my best college girlfriends. She's like, I've never heard someone talk on the phone as much as Lauren does. I think <laughs> whether I'm like walking around, doing the dishes, like unpacking from a trip, I'm literally always on the phone. First of all, I hate texting. For some reason, I, I the typos, I'm like, I, I just hate it. So I always pick up the phone and call my girlfriends. Um, because I, I, I'm an extrovert too. Like I like, I, I like, like having people around. I like knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to m- miss a beat with my friends. I don't want to call up and be like, God, I didn't even know you got that promotion. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm constantly on the phone with them. Sometimes I'm exhausted and I'm like, I got to maybe like take a break. But then I'm like, <laughs> oh, God, I love talking so much though with them. So um, yeah, massive phone caller to stay in touch. And um I do. My parents live in Arizona and a lot of my girlfriends live in California, just being that I went to USC. So, um, you know, I do go back there and like, I'll make time to see everyone. And there's been like a lot of weddings or babies. And so that's always, that's been really fun too, to stay in touch and like celebrate everyone's moments. Hmm. Yeah. We ask everyone on the podcast where they put themselves on the powerful lady scale, zero being average everyday human and 10 being the most powerful lady possible. Where would you rank yourself today and where would you rank yourself on average? Oh my gosh. Today I'm feeling really good. I would say um, we have like a lot of exciting stuff coming up this week and things that we've never 
done before. And I like, I'm shaking myself kind of being like, wow, this is all happening. This is all happening. <laughs> so I'm going to go really powerful today. Um, so I'm going to go like, is that bad to go nine ten for today? Cause I'm going to go there. I think, um, I think I love it. I think there are absolutely 100% days when I'm like a negative. I would say like, yeah. I- I'll wake up and I'll be like, this didn't work out. This didn't work out. I'm just, I'm giving up. I'm totally mm-hmm. giving up. I have those days all the time. And I, I'm not embarrassed to say that because without having those days, I wouldn't have these 10 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that figure like moves constantly. And today just caught me on like a 10 day. Um, but yeah, it's okay to be a negative number sometimes. And it's okay to be a 10 sometimes. And it's okay to be a five. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, um, you know, as you know, part of my coaching practice is asking about the wins. That's my first question. Since we last talked, what were your wins? Mm -hmm. And I remember we had a week where you said, this has been the worst week since, you know, we had been having sessions. And so we started with the wins and we got to like 18. Yeah, I remember that. you thought it was a bad week. Um, So to me, that's always a great exercise to remind everyone that even when it feels like this is the worst week we're having as an entrepreneur... The truth is when we look, there's so many things that are still moving us forward. Totally, totally. And I think we, I was mentioning that earlier. Like I really try to count every win as like a big mm-hmm. win, but sometimes like there are days we just like literally can't get there. Yeah, You're just like the bad <laughs> overrides the good right now. And like, that's just how it is today. And like, I'm going to go to sleep and hope for the best tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for everyone that's listening and they have ideas for, you know, businesses in the fashion space or they're an entrepreneur in New York who isn't sure if now is the right time, what advice would you give to everyone who's thinking about taking the leap? Um, two pieces of advice. I think you should just go for it. You absolutely should go for it and not hesitate. But with that said, I think the number one thing beyond just, you know, blindly trusting myself is I've worked really, really hard to build a network. I would not be anywhere without building this network in New York City um, through, you know, going to NYU, but also like all of the different, you know, career moves that I've made in the city. Like without that network, I would be nowhere. I mean, when I first was consigning, it was like a year ago, like getting those first consigners in, it was just like people I knew from my network. It wasn't like I blindly emailed people and they were like, yeah, this sounds amazing. It's like, people that you know. Mm. And so like, I can't even, I, again, with the girlfriends, I can't articulate how important that like building that network in it is. And that does take time, but it's mm-hmm. so crucial. So like by the time you've got that like idea, you can go for it because you've got such a strong group of people that surround you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do this stuff alone. Like absolutely no way. And you shouldn't because you're not an expert at everything. So you shouldn't yeah. do it alone anyways. No true words, right? Yes. Yes. I don't want to be an expert at everything. It's too much. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank and you, I'm Kara. so glad that you gave some time for me. I know you're so busy and you're already working on a Sunday. So thank you so much. And I can't wait for everyone to hear more about you. Thanks, Kara. This was great. I'm really excited. And thanks everyone out there listening. <laughs> Every business has been changed as a result of 2020. Lauren's strategic approach to Dora Mar this year is a great example of how you can use challenges as opportunities to recalibrate and recommit to yourself and the vision you have for your business. 
I am so excited to see her success, her Vogue feature, and everything else that she's been achieving. Plus, for all of you and I out there that love fashion and shopping and would like access to what she has to sell, her product is amazing and you can't find it anywhere else. Connect, support, buy from, and follow Lauren at shopdoramar at Instagram and visit her website, dora-mar.com. And that's D-O-R-M-A-A-R.com. For more information about Lauren, this episode, and more ways to connect with her, go to thepowerfulladies.com forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Powerful Ladies Podcast. There are so many ways you can get involved and get supported with fellow powerful ladies. First, subscribe to this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. Join the Powerful Ladies Thrive Collective. This is the place where powerful ladies connect, level up, and learn how to thrive in business and life. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And of course, visit our website, thepowerfulladies.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. Without her, this wouldn't be possible. You can follow her on Instagram at Jordan K. Duffy. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.